light and air, deep plans and networks, brightly coloured 1950s American cars, dramatically styled with chrome tail fins, provide a defining image of mid-20th century modernity. Their imagery seemed to associate modern technology with personal freedom and decadence. The future they symbolised consigned the horse and cart, then still a regular sight in the US and Europe, to the medieval past. Those ridiculous glorious tail fins were invented by Harley Earl from the General Motors, and when GM sought an architect for its new 320-acre research and design campus at Warren, Michigan, on the suburban fringes of Detroit, USA, Earl helped them to choose Aero Sarinen. GM's campus was built over eight years between 1948 and 1956, at an astonishing cost for that time of $60 million. Its modern buildings tap GM's automotive technology, burnishing the futuristic credentials of what was then America's largest corporation. A central lake was completed with artworks by modern sculptors Alexander Calder and Antoine Fesner, no relation to Nicholas. Topped with a 40 metre tall stainless steel finished water tower, most striking was Sarinen's styling dome, steel clad like the cars, glinting in the sunlight like it had landed from one of America's newly popular science fiction sci-fi movies. Earl's aerodynamically styled cars were arranged in a circle under the dome's reflective ceiling, and its visitors must have felt they were standing at the epicentre of the future. The majority of buildings on GM's campus reflected modernity less sensationally, echoing Mises IT campus. Most comprised low-lying, pared-down steel frame boxes set in Parkland, clad with curtain walls. Those curtain walls were flatter than Mises waterproofed with neoprene strips invented for another of Earl's styling innovations, the wraparound windscreen. Less immediately noticeable was the novel servicing of the GM buildings. Ceilings, like at the Technical Centre Studios in 1953, told the story. Set out on a 5-foot, 2-inch grid, their dimensions coordinated the placement of, of every element, from partitions and doors to the facade glazing. Their regular grids brought together fluorescent tubes, electrical outlets, fire sprinklers, connected to a network of pipes and air supply and extraction via concealed ducts. Air conditioning, diffusers and sprinkler heads were placed so that partitions could be arranged and rearranged along the ceiling's grid lines. Pipes and ducts ran through the steel floor decks with the finished ceilings hung below them as, separate, as a separate element. This suspended ceiling, designed by Sarian's office with GM technicians, plus consultants, Smith Hinchman and Grills, indicated a fresh organising logic for modern architecture. Most buildings had previously remained relatively narrow in plan, rarely more than 12 metres across, because its interior spaces had to be lit by the sun and ventilated using open w opening windows. Air conditioning and fluorescent tubes, however, allowed satisfactory lighting and ventilation to be provided artificially rather than naturally. Accommodation could thus be placed further from windows, enabling buildings to become deeper in plan. This made buildings cheaper because the amount of external wall, the most expensive part, could be reduced in relation to the overall floor area. Various office cells at GM in the 1951 engineering group 
building, for example, had no external windows but were instead glazed boxes on internal corridors. The suspended ceiling, which since became consolidated as a global standard grid, familiar from countless offices, hospitals and schools, stood for the substitution of natural light and air with mechanical provision. Air conditioning and fluorescent light thus became combined to produce a deep plan architectural logic. American engineer Willis Haviland Carrier is credited with combining existing technologies to produce modern air conditioning in the 1900s. Scottish chemist Joseph Black had worked out in 1760 that heat get ab gets absorbed when liquid evaporates into vapour and released when vapour condenses into liquid, but the consequences were only later exploited. By the mid-19th century, American trade in ice shipped south from northern climates for a range of uses from medical treatments to refrigerating ships' cargoes grew so profitable that inventors started experimenting with turning water into ice mechanically using chemical refrigerants. Simultaneously, experiments were being undertaken in theatres to circulate ice or water-cooled air, or to draw cool air from underground chambers to reduce overheating in summer. Although these were mostly ineffective or produced very humid environments, Carrier worked out that air temperature could be controlled by adjusting moisture levels, drawing air through a spray of cooled or heated vapour, supplied by coils filled with hot or cold water. He used historical weather records to calibrate temperature and moisture levels in order to mitigate excessive humidity. The resulting air conditioning was initially used in factory spaces, processing delicate materials like celluloid film and pharmaceutical capsules. The first fully air-conditioned building was completed in 1929, the, Mil the, Mil the Milan Building in San Antonio, Texas, USA, where a network of ducts hung in corridors introduced cooled or warmed air into offices. The earliest artificial lighting systems, meanwhile, burned coal gas. Gas light infrastructure became widespread in European and American cities during the late 19th century. In the 1870s, however, American engineer Charles Francis Brush developed one of the first viable systems for electric rather than gas lights, connecting a steam-powered dynamo to arc lamps with copper cables. A major development was the invention and improvement of incandescent light bulbs in the, 19, in the 1890s, in different forms by Thomas Edison and Joseph Swan. As power stations and electric supply networks became constructed in cities during the early 20th century, Milan was an early adopter. Electric lighting overtook gas. The precursor of modern fluorescent lighting was developed by American engineer D. McFarlane Moore, who invented an electric-powered gas-filled tube lamp. Different gases were tried over some 40 years to produce the best illumination. George Claude tried neon gas in the 1910s, and although the orange light it emitted was unsuitable for lighting rooms, it made striking illuminated signs when filled into glass tubes and twisted into letters and shapes. Neon thus became a symbol of modernity and contributed to the image of international style buildings. The 1939 New York World's Fair spurred two American companies, General Electric and Slovenia, to produce white low-voltage fluorescent lamps. These provided phenomenal successful, shipping large volumes in the US after the Second World War. Four-fifths of the power of incandescent bulbs went to heat at that time, and only a fifth to light, 
with bulbs producing around 40% of the cooling demand in the first air-conditioned buildings, so fluorescent light producing significantly less heat became an obvious partner for air conditioning. By the 1950s, aircon became widespread in America, not just in factories but also in theatres, offices and rail cars, and fluorescent lighting also grew more widely employed. GM's campus illustrated an early example of, of their integration, combined into those highly serviced ceilings, which made deep plan buildings conceivable. GM's campus also illustrated the translation of ideas about highly supervised, statistically analysed mass production, like at Ford's Highland Park, from factories into offices. Indeed, Sorinian's architect father, Eliel, knew about Albert Kahn. Deep plan floor plates transformed office work and workplaces. Single cell offices became highly glazed and so-called open plan layouts were tested, arranging fields of desks and low partitions across whole floors. These office landscapes allowed workers to be readily overseen, permitting the perpetual reorganisation of people and furniture to suit changing management dynamics. GM's campus was one of the first out-of-town office parks and it illustrated changing post-war relations between home and work. The lakeside landscape was designed for viewing from moving car and managers assumed that employees would drive to work. The site was imagined as a gated compound on the edge of the city, connected by highway networks to workers' detachable suburban houses. Due to employers like GM, Detroit became over subsequent decades a prime example of the movement of office to work, work to out-of-town sites. Accompanied by the movement of middle-class housing to suburbs and shopping to roadside strip malls, such changes transformed historic city centres in the US, some of which emptied out, leaving dereliction and poverty behind. Thus, GM's campus illustrates broader post-war shifts found in varying degrees of different Western cultures away from a traditional idea of civic life conducted in the streets and squares of the city towards a new preference for the private realms of office, car, home and TV. GM's campus also anticipated the idea of a network society. Its office workers were mostly distributed across open plan offices, their desk layouts reflecting the network diagrams of management structures. Complex patterns of pipes, ducts and wires embedded in the ceiling echoed complex urban networks of power and water supply. Moreover, the campus relied on its adjacent highway network supplying goods and workers. Not long after GM's campus, Sarian's office designed headquarters for IBM computers and Bell Telephone along similar lines. It's no coincidence that IBM's pioneering computing, soon imagined in terms of networked computers, was developed under Sarian's networked ceilings, echoing networked urban infrastructures. Historian Reinhold Martin has argued that these projects were connected directly into Cold War politics via systems thinking, which understood everything in the world as complex, interconnected, mathematically modelable systems. Martin noted the post-war Western alliance of new military technologies with commercial industrial expertise, sometimes called the military-industrial complex, linking corporations with states and their armies, automotive with aeronautical design, and computing with innovations in warfare. Martin argued that the GM campus, alongside Sarian's headquarters for IBM and Bell, stood for the global power of this military-industrial complex. 
He illustrated the point by referring to the opening ceremony for the GM campus in 1956, dubbed the Versailles of Technology, by Life magazine after the famous French Royal Gardens, attended by GM's executives and their guests including senior US military officers and the President of Indonesia. Addressed live from the White House by the US President, Dwight D. Eisenhower, the so-called military-industrial complex, arguably represented by GM, who opened a defence division in the 1950, was criticised because it was profited from warfare and thus appeared perversely incentivised to promote conflict to sell technology. It was also hugely inventive, directly or indirectly, spawning technologies for space travel, the microprocessor and the networking of computers into the World Wide Web, test piloting Bucky's domes. While the post-war years saw a new deep-plan architectural logic emerge from air conditioning and artificial lighting, it had already become accepted that modern buildings should look light and airy. This imagery was helped by new glass technology, which enabled the fabrication of bigger panes, so-called float glass, formed into continuous steel sheets by rolling hot liquid glass onto molten tin. Glass never produced its own architectural logic like steel and reinforced concrete had, despite experiments to design structural glass beams and columns. However, float glass did help modern architects, including Mies and Corboisier, to devise an imagery of lightness and airiness, and in those terms became widespread in accounts of modern buildings. This book's fourth superhero of modern architecture was the most celebrated champion of lightness in architecture, inventor, author and futurologist Richard Buckminster Fuller, 1895-1983. Nicknamed Bucky by fans, he was famous for delivering complex, charismatic lectures at manic speed. Born into an aristocratic Massachusetts family on America's East Coast, he became a curious blend of geek and travelling salesman, traversing the world with suitcases full of modern illustrating his latest ideas. Fuller lived his life as a scientific experiment, testing all sorts of speculations, philosophies and diets on himself, often at the expense of his long-suffering family, recording the details with astonishing comprehensiveness. In a diary he named grandly, the Dimaxian Chronophile. Fuller was credited as a pioneer of sustainability, concerned with humanity's lasting impact on the planet and its mitigation through technological invention. He's been depicted as a proto-hippie, anticipating that 1960s counterculture through his mystical ideas about density, destiny, synergistic understanding between people and unseen connections inherent in universe, which he wrote with the capital U, and without the the to emphasise its all-encompassing unity. Fuller talked about pattern integrities, phenomena evident in universe wanting to be discovered. His example was a knot. People usually think of knots in terms of rope or nylon as a material, however the knot is none of these things but instead an idea that becomes a form, a pattern integrity. This thinking underpinned Fuller's idealistic designs, including a three-wheeled car, future-proof so it could later fly, 1933, a moulded copper bathroom, 1936, and a striking One Ocean World Map, 1943, formulated for global citizens to design connected systems, 
While Fuller didn't like architects, they admired his designs for prefabricated houses, including the 4D or Dymaxion House, 1928-29, and Dymaxion Deployment Unit, 1940, plus an improbably lightweight structural system he invented called Tensegrity, 1948, and super-light geodesic domes in 1949. Various modern architects like Saronian was entranced by possibilities for factory production and so-called technology transfer from the automobile industry, fantasising about mass-producing prefabricated houses ready for delivery to site. Fuller's Dymaxion House fulfilled these fantasies. As historian Mark Wigley has noted, Fuller became frustrated by the wastefulness of houses in relation to the magical efficiency of new technologies like cars and radios. In response, Fuller argued in 1929 that houses should eliminate domestic work, exploitation, selfishness and centralised control, safeguard against flood, storms, fire, earthquake, hurricanes and marauders, and save time for education, amusement and advancement. He invented the term dimaxion, which he applied to various inventions for publicity purposes, emphasising futuristic-sounding words combining dynamic and maximum with the scientific ion. Fuller's proposed dimaxion house, presented in striking drawings and models in 1928 through to 1929, was to be factory-made and delivered by airship. Dramatically, the airship would drop a bomb to form a crater in the ground. The house, centred on a mast containing a staircase, lift, and electrical and mechanical services, would then be lowered into the hull, like planting a tree, and, concreted in with tensioning wires added to secure it, driven by solar and wind power, also recycling rainwater and packaging sold waste for reprocessing, the house could exist off-grid, in remote areas or indeed in cities ready for immediate inhabitation. Fuller's house anticipated numerous future technologies, several commercialised only later in the century, and numerous components were thought afresh. Many innovations made novel use of air conditioning, provided to remote smells and dust, and also to pressurise air for other uses. The structure was designed as a lightweight aluminium frame set out on a triangular grid, infilled with a translucent vacuum-sealed panels and fitted with springy, inflatable floors. Pneumatic silk partitions and doors were accompanied by plug-in vacuum hoses and inflatable furniture whose firmness could be controlled by the users. The ceiling was also conceived as a continuous surface, admitting diffuse light with vents to control temperature. Furniture would be suspended from the ceiling, including glass tables on neon-lit cables. Storage would be provided in revolving units. Triangular curtains fitting the structural module would pull out of the floor or drop from the ceiling. A moulded bathroom unit in the mast would wash people instantly with an atomised spray. A utility space which Fueller dubbed the catch-up-with-life room would clean and dry clothes within minutes. A go-ahead-with-life room would contain a radio, television, barely, barely viable technology at the time, Maps, globes, revolving books, shelves, a drawing board, typewriter and various learning materials. Fuller imagined residents of Dymaxian houses as planetary citizens liberated from domestic drudge by technology, 
freed up to dream and invent as active contributors to Spaceship Earth, a term he coined later in 1951. Fuller claimed that the Dymaxine house could be produced for an automobile company and cost as little as a car. Like the cars and personal aeroplanes shown parked beneath it in drawings, he envisaged that it could be easily moved. When the residents wanted to relocate, they could take their house with them. Fuller never saw a Dymaxine house built at full size, blaming the entrenched interests of the architectural establishment for opposing mass production, but his models inspired diverse imagery in architecture, art, fiction and film, including interiors in sci-fi movies as diverse as the hugely sexist Barbarella, in 1968 and Star Wars in 1977. Life under a dome. While Fuller never saw a Dymaxian house built, deployable shelters were constructed to his designs for US military use during the Cold War. One memorable image shows a lightweight dome suspended from a helicopter with a single cable. That dome was part of a 20-year research project conducted with students whom Fuller taught as visiting professor at a sequence of universities. These geodesic domes were highly efficient spheres, or more usually part spheres, inspired by bugs' eyes and spiders' webs, made from slender structural elements arranged in triangles and developed through a mix of complex mathematics and trial and error. They employed the least materials possible, arranged in the most efficient way, to transmit loads to the ground. Geodesic domes seemed impossibly light and strong, an image of the second prototype, made by students at Black Mountain College, North Carolina, in 1949, shows people hanging improbably off a lightweight frame. Fuller led the construction of prototype domes at Montreal, Canada, in 1951, North Carolina State College, 1952, and the University of Oregon in 1953, before, awarding a path before the awarding of a patent in 1954. He had dome stick applications in mind, making it a detailed model of what he called Skybreak House in 1952. This showed a bubble-like ally dome lifted on stilts finished with a lightweight transparent insulating plastic skin. Furniture would be arranged on a platform at the base of the dome and only the most private functions would be separated out into enclosed boxes. Fuller enthused that transparent domes like this would dissolve the traditional idea of the house, likening them to living under the sky. Wall and roof here were to be combined into an almost invisible layer of high-performance plastic. While no such plastic was viable at the time, Fuller and his student collaborators tested several innovative materials, including mylar, receiving free samples from Dewpoint and other corporations. Most of the geodesic domes realised were commissioned by the US military. In 1949, Fuller installed a prototype at the Pentagon, Washington, DC, headquarters of the US Department of Defence, and for use in conflicts and disaster relief. Another dome, a lightweight timber lattice covered in chicken wire with a sprayed on neopropane rubber skin, built by North Carolina State University students, was the one that was test lifted by a US Marines helicopter in 1951. The experiment was deemed a success and lightweight magnesium framed domes were then commissioned from Fuller's company, Geodesics Inc, for military applications in 1955. 
A dome made in fiberglass was tested on the roof of the Lincoln Laboratory at MIT, Cambridge, Massachusetts, to cover an experimental radar installation, proving invisible to the radar and a surveilling hurricane shortly afterwards. Wise to a marketing opportunity, Fuller branded this variant the Radio Dome, photographing workers balancing its triangular components on their fingertips to illustrate their lightness and strength. When a line of 63 radar stations was constructed in 1957 at the frozen extremity of the Americas to provide early warning of Soviet invasion from Alaska to Baffin Island, they were covered with Bucky Domes. As widely remarked, the geodesic dome no longer simply defined just domestic shelter. It defined domestic security for an entire continent. Fuller spent a lifetime fascinated by experimental materials, excited by futuristic imagery. Imagining buildings made for delivery by airship and helicopter, he challenged assumptions that architecture should be heavyweight, fixed and expensive. Visiting a building designed by British architects Norman and Wendy Foster in 1978, he inquired memorably, How much does your building weigh? Fuller implied, Why shouldn't buildings be cheap and portable? Why shouldn't they provide technological liberations like those offered by cars and televisions? His structures went beyond the idea that modern architecture ought to simply look light and airy, to realising highly lightweight, almost transparent structures. Indeed, his anti-architectural, anti-establishment thinking inspired a diverse group of architects, critics, engineers and dropouts in the 1960s and 1970s. Bubbles and Blimps Fuller's geodesics proposed stripping architecture back to basic human shelter. In a 1960 book, Theory and Design in the First Machine Age, Banham, again, argued that form never really did follow function in international-style modernism. Its buildings offered superficial images of modernity, he argued, but didn't tap the full potential of new technologies. In the spirit of Fuller and Mises' dictum that less is more, Barnum argued that mechanical and electrical services, artificial lighting, air conditioning and power supply represented the basic components of shelter, ideally supplemented only by the mo most minimal of enclosures. A 1965 article by Barnham in the magazine Art in America was illustrated by artist Francoise Dallegre. Together they proposed the unhouse. Dallegre's section depicted a double-skinned inflated transparent plastic bubble on a plinth, showing a group of greyed out naked Barnhams and Dallegre's collaged around a central technological totem pole. That totem held lamps, a TV screen, stereo speakers, fridge, cooker and air supply. Meanwhile, the architecture became reduced to two thin lines representing plastic membranes. The proposal was inspired by technologies, then being developed for early space exploration. For the artificial environmental bubbles of rocket ships and spacesuits, Banham and Dallegre described the unhouse as a living package that would do away with the weighty encumbrances of buildings and their associated social and cultural baggage, indicated new ways of life. The naked figures in the drawing referred to the 1960s idea of sexual liberation, 
supposedly occasioned by the newly invented female contraceptive pill. They also referred to primitive man, proposing a return to an idea about architecture's ancient origins, a circle of people gathered around a fire, as described in the oldest surviving architecture book, Vitruvius de Architectura, 1st century CE. Several designers explored this reduction of architecture to clear inflated plastic membranes. Examples included Michael Webb's experimental Schusical bubble and his plastic Sutaloon fitted to the human body in 1967. House Rucker Co's self-explanatory balloon for two, also 1967. Mobile office, an inflated drum where the architect Hans Hollein sat at a drawing board, 1969. Ant Farm's clean air pod, 1970, and the restless sphere that the Austrian collective co-op Himmel B. Au rolled around the streets of Basel, Switzerland, in 1971. In such projects, membranes became second skins for human figures, whose blurry contours appeared through their surface reflections. These architects took lightness and airiness to an extreme, at a time when Tange and Safidi were simultaneously designing heavyweight megastructures, and Kahn was seeking a new monumentality for modern architecture. In contrast, their anti-monumental projects questioned whether architecture should involve buildings at all. These inflatable fantasies deliberately challenged architecture's traditional associations with performance, but their designers also diverged somewhat from Banham and Delegret's vision of the unhouse. They understood their bubbles not as an extension of the total environmental control, as proposed by Banham, and as embodied by Sarian's GM campus, where fluorescent lighting and air conditioning substituted for natural light and air but instead as a parody of total environmental control. The inhabitants of these bubbles were not imagined as enclosed by technology, so much as imprisoned by it. A spirit of satire informed these young architects' work, partly in response to the counterculture of the late 1960s and early 1970s. Various anti-establishment movements first flourished across Europe, and the US in association with the coming of age of the post-war baby boomers. They played to the soundtrack of the Beatles and Rolling Stones, relaxed with what Barnham called wonder drugs and new domestic chemistries, championed equal rights for all genders and ethnicities, and looked up to a new creative class of celebrities, artists and designers. Hippie incarnations of these movements in the late 1960s reacted specifically against the Vietnam War and the draft of young Americans to fight. Their thinking endorsed a new environmentalism, as heightened by Fuller, acu acutely aware of the fragility of planet Earth and the destruction of life by human activity. Student groups associated with the counterculture were highly political, imagining mainstream figures, including their teachers, as complacent, reactionary establishment. Their frustrations boiled over into demonstrations in 1968. In Paris, New York, Prague and West Berlin, for example, challenging what they saw as the imperial ambitions of warmongering anti-democratic regimes, championing, in, championing instead freedom and civil rights. 
these demonstrations, some violently suppressed, didn't represent a coherent global movement, but they did connect local, national and international concerns with wider protests and trade union groups. Some radicals decided to drop out of mainstream society to reject the establishment and money culture, collecting together to live communal subsistence lives. In 1965, four art students, styled as Curly, Joe, Lard and Clard, founded a commune in remote southeast Colorado, USA, self-building geodesic domes out of recycled components like car parts. Another group, Ant Farm, whose chief protagonists were architects Chip Lord and Doug Michaels, began building a so-called nomadic environment in Death Valley, California, with domes and inflatables, working with the writer Stuart Brand. Brand's Whole Earth Catalogue, several editions of which were published between 1968 and 1971, mixed articles about self-sufficiency, ecology, and radical education with reviews of building products and DIY tips. It provided a how-to guide for alternative living. Steve Jobs, who founded the Homebrew Computer Club in California before founding Apple Computers, later described it as like Google in paperback form, 35 years before Google. Jobs highlighted that while communes never became mainstream, they incubated ideas about sharing and information economies that later informed the emerging internet. Mainstream post-war modern architecture gradually became seen as part of the establishment problem. It got associated with top-down comprehensive redevelopment involving the clearing, clearance of settled communities. For example, the imposition of housing and office blocks constructed the, in the West in the 1960s on the lines of Corboisier's vile contemporain. Driven by local and national authorities, this growing perception was strengthened by author, activist and sociologist Jane Jacobs' 1961 book, Death and Life of Great American Cities. Jacobs studied lively, traditional neighbourhoods with strong communities and a vibrant street life, including Boston's North End, then slated to be cleared, showing how they figured better in health, crime and education measures than replacement modern neighbourhoods. Such perceived failures of modern architecture became symbolised by the demolition of the troubled Pritt-Ego housing blocks in St. Louis, Missouri, USA in 1972. Memorable images of their demolition illustrated a growing disillusionment with modern architecture, which became perceived as an accessory of top-down control. The bubbles of Barnham, Co-op, Himmelbau, Drop City and others can be understood in this context as a rejection of centralised planning and industrial construction. Conceived instead as recovering the supposedly early promise of modern architecture to express straightforwardly new technologies and new social configurations. Rightly or wrongly, the fantastical drawings of the Archigram group became seen as defining images of 1960s counterculture. Archigram began as a group of British students and architects comprising Michael Webb, whose Cushicle and Suteloon have been mentioned earlier, Warren Chalk, Peter Cook, Dennis Crompton, David Green and Ron Herring. 
The name Archigram combined architecture with telegram, then the fastest means of global communication, a kind of text message sent from post offices. They used the same name for an anti-architecture fan fanzine they published on a shoestring budget containing memorable images that mashed up clip-outs from advertising and film posters with sci-fi comic imagery and straight-laced technical drawing. Historian Simon Sadler had shown how these drawings blended humour with seriousness, experimental fantasies with plausible technological predictions, techno-gadgetry with ideas about disposableness, and 1960s radical politics with the macho-deferring do of boys' comics. Heron's drawing for Walking City in 1964 proposed giant insect-inspired megastructures on eight legs, alternative communities made of prefabricated modules that could stride across the landscape. Dennis Crompton's Computer City drawings in 1964 showed an abstract grid of dwellings looking like substations and diodes, plugged in with pipes and cable work, cables, expressing the idea of the city as a connected network. Most memorable was Peter Cook's cartoon strip, proposing an instant city in 1969, emblazoned with slogans, the images illustrated successive stages for the takeover of a sleeping small town. First, an airship would arrive and get plugged in. Then it would lower tents and billboards to provoke spontaneous events, enlivening the town's spaces. Square becomes theatre, the drawings proclaimed. Yard about to become disco talk pit, and the blink drops projection streams. After a period of high intensity, the airship would move on, leaving a town infiltrated with learning stations and info centre technology. Ongoing counteraction would then be inspired among empowered young people, the Instant City Network having taken over. Archigram's drawings followed Fuller's lead in claiming a spontaneous, playful and disposable architecture. They conceived architecture as short-term rather than long-term, as the design of transient events rather than fixed structures. Indeed, the combination of technology, culture and democracy they illustrated resonated afresh with a larger generation grappling with how to imagine the newly popularised internet in the 2000s. Skin and Guts The closest anyone got to building Instant City, or something like it, was in Paris's Marius district. A competition held in 1971 saw architects for a gallery library and contemporary music labs. The jury, chaired by Jean, Jean, Jean Prouvray, an engineer famous for demountable structures, chose a design from a then-obscure Giro. Ren's piano and Richard Rogers, working with engineers Ove Arup and partners, in the spirit of the 1968 protests, Piano and Rogers proposed an anti-institutional institution. The building that finally opened in 1978, named Centre Georges Pompidou, after the French president who championed it, and often called Balborg after its site contained all the contradictions you might expect of an expensive, permanent, state-sponsored institution trying to seem temporary, spontaneous and radical. Balborg brought together the deep plan logic of air conditioning 
and fluorescent lighting with ideas of spontaneity evoked by archigrams, bubbles and blimps. It comprised a substantial steel frame supporting broad, highly serviced free-plan floor plates without intermediate columns. These floor plates, it was imagined, would provide maximum flexibility for radical curators to stage events, combining painting and sculpture with video, sound and art, for example, or altogether new art forms. It was originally proposed that floor segments should move up and down for extra flexibility, although this was later abandoned because of cost. Along with digital billboards proposed for the facades, escalators were threaded through the structural frame in glazed tubes on one facade facing a new public square, offering striking views over Paris and symbolising dynamism and spontaneity. The primary street facade, meanwhile, comprised a web of brightly coloured pipes and ducts, feeding service voids in the suspended ceilings and raised floor behind. Putting the ducts on the outside helped keep the floor plates free of disruptive service zones, but it also conferred the building a radically novel image. Dramatised expression of structure and servicing technology, which historians subsequently categorised as its own architectural style. High tech. Balborg's attempts to express informality and spontaneity weren't so original. Drawing from Barnham's idea of architecture as a serviced container, Archigram's imagery, the 19th century engineering of Paxton and Eiffel, a 1960s proposal for a flexible, fun palace in London, imagined by theatre director John Littlewood with architect Cedric Price. It was distinguished from comparable proposals, however, by the fact of getting built, albeit with compromises. The escalator tubes later became privatised, incorporated into the paid-for gallery experience, rather than free to the public, and curators later built permanent rooms on certain floor plates to save the cost of refitting them for every exhibition. When it was finished, Balborg was as unpopular with the Parisian elite as Eiffel's Tower had been a century before. The philosopher Jean Baudrillard thought it illustrated the image of a culture flattened by its own weight, generated by logicians of the establishment, wholly lacking in critical spirit. Balborg sold out its radical potential. He believed, by freezing promises of dynamism and spontaneity, onto a fixed institution. Moreover, with unashamed elitism, Baudrillard criticised Balborg as being a machine to a mass-produced art for the masses. He abhorred how its imagery, expressing the guts of its building surfaces, honoured mass production more than it honoured the cultures of artistic craft. To Baudrillard, Balborg rejected the idea of artistic endeavour as the pinnacle of human thought and civilization, which, he thought, a cultural building should celebrate, standing instead for a banal industrial modernity. Before partnering with Piano, Richard Rogers and Sue Rogers had worked with fellow British architects Norman and Wendy Foster. The Fosters, practising as Foster Associates, completed another art gallery, the Sainsbury Centre, at the University of East Anglia, Norwich in UK. At first glance, it looked like the no-nonsense steel roadside sheds familiar across America or Europe. The ugly, ordinary, 
roadside buildings had been celebrated in Robert Venturi's Denise Scott Brown and Stephen Eisenhower's 1971 book Learning from Las Vegas, but the Sainsbury Centre became a refined, exaggerated version of these everyday sheds, sited on a rise in the landscape like an ancient temple. It had a so-called space frame structure, inspired by Fulo's geodesics, made of slender steel tubes formed into interlocking triangles, concealed in wide double skins. These double skins contained substantial spaces for structure, services and maintenance gantries, and even secondary rooms like WCs and storerooms. Between the two double skins was a vast room for exhibitions without any intermediate columns. 30 metres wide, 7.5 metres high and 130 metres long. Two mezzanine levels for the university's fine artists, plus a basement for delivery, workshop and conservation areas, freed up this single volume to contain only one, only mobile screens and vitrines for artworks. The double skins were lined inside and out with a mixture of bespoke engineered panels, ribbed aluminium covered, louvred and glazed, sealed with neoprene gaskets to produce a sleek surface. In theory, those panels, each fixed with only six bolts, could be reconfigured to suit changes in interior layout. The shed's short ends, meanwhile, comprised equally sleek glass walls, supported on glass fins, oversailed by the space frame to form porticos overlooking the landscape. Balborg and the Sainsbury Centre were both conceived as highly serviced containers of art, but their architectural imagery diverged. The first expressed the guts of its structure and servicing, beams, pipes, ducts and lifts, while the second concealed the same servicing inside a sleek double skin, revealing it only in tantalising glimpses through glazed panels. Both sought an imagery of light and air, both highlighted the complex structure and servicing required to build sports hall-like spaces for art. Both traded on the rhetoric of flexibility and spontaneity. However, as illustrated by the permanent rooms retrofitted to Balborg's floor plates and reconfigurable panels at the Sainsbury Centre that were never reconfigured, both also overstated their flexibility. These high-tech buildings were set apart from Sarian's GM campus and Fuller's geodesics by their visual exaggeration of their technological credentials, illustrated by technical adducts and a double skin containing significantly more space than strictly necessary. Previous modern buildings I've discussed in this book question the merits of architectural decoration, understood by their architects as arbitrary, unnecessary, unnecessary and morally wrong, but Balborg's and the Sainsbury Centre, by contrast, renewed concern for amplified imagery. They moved beyond ideas about deriving plan form, for example, and the placement of windows straightforwardly from functional necessities. They didn't only express technology, they fetishised it, as critics said at the time. Balborg's web of ducts became a kind of ornamentation, as did the sleek surfaces of the Sainsbury Centre, artfully caricaturing ordinary roadside sheds and expressively reinventing typical components. 
both buildings took the expression of technology beyond, say, E1027 or Seagram, and beyond the rhetoric of functional logic. Previous modern buildings emphasised technology visually, while Balborg and Sainsbury artfully exaggerated it, engaging in technologically inspired embellishment. This distinction is subtle but important. It shows how Balborg and Sainsbury extended the functional ethos of modern design, but also went beyond it. Arguably, these buildings rejected Ruskin's insistence on truth to materials by accentuating functional necessities for visual effect, flouting Lou's insistence that ornament is a crime, and Mai's dictum that less is more. These buildings, complex imagery, reflected the growing complexities of the time, the 1973 energy crisis, when Middle Eastern oil companies refused to supply fuel to certain Western countries because of a war with Israel, highlighted connections between burgeoning oil consumption, global politics and ecological concerns. The crisis highlighted the fragility of energy supply at the time, when its reliability had become taken for granted. It renewed post-war apprehensions about the value of technology for society, and it coincided with the prolonged economic downturn, causing the decline of established industries and communities around them. In the West, meanwhile, the Cold War threat of imminent nuclear destruction persisted. A growing popular sense emerged that the modern promise of perpetual progress linking technology and democracy with ever-increasing living standards, had halted. Art, literature and film increasingly reflected this emerging scepticism. Meanwhile, prominent philosophers and cultural theorists challenged the fundamental basis of scientific and technological thinking. They illustrated how the supposedly objective realities and, the, and absolute truths of science and technology conveniently reflected the values of a prosperous white Western male elite. Feminism, civil rights, ecological activism, and studies of global power, post-colonialism, highlighted links between global finance, political authority, and the priorities of industry and military technologies, questioning the motivations of the powerful global technocratic establishment. It's now widely assumed that modernity came to an end in the 1980s and 1990s because of this growing loss of faith in ideas of progress and technology, highlighting the increasingly complicated problems of so-called developed societies. These complexities can be seen reflected in the subtle if fundamental shift from modern architectures which express technology to those like Balborg and Sainsbury which highlighted it, which heightened it. Balborg and Sainsbury were transitional. They remained statements of faith in the social promise of technology. But as philosopher Walter Benjamin reflected, every age dreams its successor, and their high-tech imagery also anticipated the so-called postmodern architecture of the 1980s, which rejected modern moralising about honest architectural expression and re-embraced heightened imagery while the underlying structural logic of postmodern buildings usually remained straightforwardly modern, their surfaces became ornamented with decoration derived from architectural history, swooping or jagged deconstructed forms, or, indeed, 
high-tech motifs. Thus, Balborg and Sainsbury stand both for late modernity and the emergence of what followed. They conclude this story about modern architecture. However, they could equally begin another story about postmodern architecture.